The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's open our Bibles. We'll get started this evening with our message, and we're looking at Exodus chapter 28. Our study from this chapter is about the garments that are worn by the Old Testament high priest, and we are considering the priesthood in Israel because of the necessity of the priest to the sacrificial system. We're headed towards the final messages in this series, Seeking the Savior in the Sacrifices, that will end with a discussion of the Day of Atonement. That's the most significant day of sacrifices that were made in Israel, and that's the day that the high priest went behind the veil into the tabernacle, uh, into the presence of God in the brilliant light of the Shekinah glory. Now, I said we're, we're headed towards the end, and that is actually a long way off. It's uh, in the middle of the summer or so before we're actually able to finish up. But these two, these two symbols of Christ, the priest and the sacrifice, are very closely connected. Both are the most significant direct types of Christ in the Old Testament, and they give us the best opportunity to see Christ in Old Testament worship. Now, I want to show you again the picture of the high priest. This is Aaron dressed in the clothing that's described in Exodus 28. And the summary of these various articles of clothing you'll find in verse number 4 which says, And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a broidered coat, a mitre and a girdle, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest office. Now you can look closely at the picture and you can see the parts. The breastplate is the square piece on the chest that has the names of the children of Israel inscribed one name on each of those 12 stones. The ephod is the multicolored tunic that's underneath the breastplate. The robe is the blue robe of the ephod directly under that. And the broidered coat mentioned in this text is the white linen coat that's underneath the others and worn next to the body. And then the mitre, that's the hat. The girdle is the sash that's around the waist. These are the garments, according to verse number 2, that are made for glory and for beauty. And when wearing these clothes, Aaron was a sight. Uh, he was a representative of God to the people, better known to us, of course, as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though he pictured the glory of God, he was only a shadow of the beauty of Christ. Now, before I pass on from this picture, I... I remember evenings in our church when I was very, very young, when my dad was preaching on the tabernacle. And some of those evenings were hot, sweltering nights in a church that had no air conditioning. It always made me wonder, when I looked at this picture, the priest in all of his clothing, all of that dress, how that he kept from burning up in the tabernacle on those, on those hot, sweltering days of the wilderness of Sinai. The tabernacle wasn't designed with any windows, and there must have been very little airflow that got through it. You had five coverings that are 
on top of the golden boards and then you have a, a door into the tabernacle that's essentially a curtain that was very thick and didn't let any light in and I can't see how it let any air in. So you wonder, how did the priest do this? How did he go about all these rituals on the inside when it was so hot on the outside? And I really don't have an answer for that. But in our little church, I, I thought about that, and our church didn't have much in the way of climate control. Very hot in the summer, freezing in the winter. And until I was older, the church only had one source of heat, and that was a potbelly stove that sat near to the front and so most people in the winter time would try to get to church a little bit early so they could sit next to that stove but that's that's where I get my my stories from um, that stove with uh, that was stoked with coal and uh, my stories of people sitting next to the stove to spit tobacco juice on it to hear it sizzle that's where you get that and those 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 were the good old days folks and I, I wish that I could replicate here uh, some of those days if I, if I could get some of you to chew tobacco. But that's not really, there's not really much glory and beauty in chewing tobacco if you didn't know. But another thing that's a fond memory of those times is the pulpit that my dad preached from. In this uh, old country church, the pulpit was as big as the platform. And you walked into the pulpit and it surrounded him. And uh, I really like that idea of being surrounded. And some of you suggested there's a lot of protection for me up here if I duck. And um, you guys take the brunt of the gunfire out there. Well, we need to move on here to the last part of the priest's clothing. This evening we're going to examine verse number 39. And I want to speak to you about the mitre that was worn as the headdress. Exodus 28 verse 39 and thou shalt embroider the coat of linen, and thou shalt make the mitre of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. And then also, if you'll turn over to chapter 39, this is another place that describes the priest's clothing. Uh, chapters 28 and 39 uh, form the largest part of instructions for any of the tabernacle worship. And that shows the important types that these clothing are and the concepts of worship that they represented. In the 39th chapter, verses 27 and 28, And they made coats of fine linen of woven work for Aaron and for his sons, and a mitre of fine linen, and goodly bonnets of fine linen, and linen breeches of fine twine linen. Now our picture that you see there of the priest is, is cut off at the top, so you don't see the mitre very well. So I want to show you this next picture that gives you a little bit better idea. And this is a, a better look at the linen headpiece that's called the mitre here in the text. All of the priests wore these, but the high priest was just a little bit different in design because it had a golden plate that was at the front, and we'll talk about that in the next message. But the sixth part of our outline I want to discuss with you tonight is this mitre, which stands for the obedience of Christ. The mitre is the hat, and what you see here is the artist's conception of what that hat looked like, and there are differences of opinion about it, uh, how it was designed, and since there's no one that's seen a high priest in Israel for 2,000 years, we don't know, we don't know how it looked. There hasn't been a high priest in Israel since... AD 70 when the temple was destroyed so we can't depend on any tradition or anything like that to tell us what it looked like 
Some favor a turban type of hat that's worn like you see in the Middle East today, and that may be possible. But then you have others that say, well, no, that's not really fancy enough. This is, this is quite a bit different from that. Some maybe would favor the fish hat that's worn by the Pope, but the fish didn't have any significance in the Old Testament, so uh, that doesn't work. Our best picture may be the one that we have, although John Gill who was known for his expertise in Jewish customs, follows the description of the 12th century rabbi named Maimonides. And uh, he says that the bonnet was a wrap of about 16 cubits long. That would be 24 feet. And this was wrapped around the head and wrapped and wrapped around, and then it laid flat against the head. Now, that, that'd make quite a headpiece, I would think. But whatever the design of it, it's not the shape of it that's most important, but it's the symbolism. The symbolism of the head covering is what makes it important. A covering on the head was a symbol of submission. And this was to show that the priest was under the submission or subjection to God in authority. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought for just a few minutes. And I'm going to steer us away from this text. And I want to talk to you a little bit about head coverings. We don't have much of an opportunity to talk about this uh, normally. But while we're here, I thought that we might take some time to discuss some unpopular scriptures that teach submission to authority. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. And here we have a rather long passage where Paul discusses both men and women wearing head coverings in worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 which, of course, you also recognize as uh, our most often used Lord's Supper text towards the end of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll start at verse number 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man." For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the women to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. What does the Bible teach about wearing a head covering in the New Testament church? Now, the connection to our uh, study of priests in the Old Testament to this is simply that the head covering symbolizes submission. Now, we notice in verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, this very unpopular teaching that men are to be in authority over women. 
And there's an order that's described here. The head of Christ is God, the head of the man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. And that is the scriptural order. And in each of these cases, from Christ to the man to the woman, each is to be... Um, is to submit to that authority and to do it voluntarily. Christ submitted to the will of the Father when he was chosen to become human and to go to the death of the cross and die for our sins. But there's recently been a debate about Christ's submission. In some theological circles, this is a very hot debate because some say that from eternity, Christ always submitted to the Father. That This is also known, in case you want to know, it's known as the ESS doctrine, which means the eternal submission of the Son. We don't believe that it's true, and we'll discuss that a little bit further as we look at the Old Testament symbolism of the mitre. But for now, I want us to, to stop here and just look for a moment at the created order, which says that the woman is to be in subjection to the man. We find this same order of arrangement in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul said, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then in 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 to 13, Paul said, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So that's God's intended order. It doesn't really make a whole lot of difference how unpopular it is to people and how unpopular it might be to make these kinds of statements today. This is God's order. And basically, our society is chaotic, it's out of order, our families are in shambles and morals are shot because this is a principle that's hardly practiced. Now, the interesting part that draws our attention to this text in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the people knew. In other words, it was built into them to understand from the very beginning that they were to keep this order. And it was common for them to have a public display and they that that showed that they followed that order that's what they believe and so they showed their understanding that women were to submit to men by the woman wearing a covering on her head now in verse number 4 Paul said that it would be improper for a man to cover his head in the assembly because that would overturn the symbol of submission the only authority over man is Christ and if he were to wear a covering as the woman did, then he would say, well, I have another head over me other than Christ. That's the reason that you don't see the men in the church wearing a hat. We uncover our heads to show that we have no other head over us but Christ. But that symbolism of wearing a hat is really not much of an indicator in American society today. I mean, that isn't much of a custom anymore except... Uh, among old school advocates who still believe that it's irreverent for men and boys to wear a hat in the church. And because it still means something to some of us, then people ought not to be surprised when we ask uh, uh, a man or a boy to remove, the, remove his hat when he comes into the church. Now, it's more that we want to show an attitude of reverence, perhaps rather than 
keeping up with this uh, symbolism of the created order and submission, so we may do it for a different reason. But there are those who don't understand it. They may not recognize the custom. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, if my grandkids come into the church with a hat on, they get swatted. They're not supposed to wear one. But despite that, I don't think that a male would sin greatly by wearing a hat into the church, but I still think it's good for us to, to hold on to that, to teach reverence, because there's so few ways that we teach reverence today. We, we just don't understand that very much, and we need some ways to clearly show that. We have no other head over us but Christ. But I say that, and we look at the priest, and we say, well, all of that seems backwards. Because here we have a, a priest who has a head covering. Well, we need to remember that there is a different symbolism at work, and I'll describe it in a few minutes. One of these is the relationship of Christ to God. The other that we're talking about is the relationship of the woman to the man. And so we have two different pictures that are shown. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 considers the custom at the time of Paul. And in that time, they said a man should not wear a head covering, but a woman should because that's the accepted norm and that would be upset, and a woman who refused to wear a head covering would be a rebellious woman. Verses 5 through 9 in the text explain that. I want to read you another scripture, and then I'll, uh, I'd like to, to give you a comment that was made by my dad. In Genesis 1.26 it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. This is the comment that was made by my dad on this text in 1972. He said, A man indeed ought not to wear a head covering in the assembly of the church. God made man to be the ruler of everything on the earth. He is not in subordination to anything on the earth. The uncovering of his head in the presence of God shows reverence and respect to his God. Man is to show that he is God's representative on earth and that he has a position of superiority over all things on the earth. The woman is to show her subordination to man. God made the woman for the man. Everything about the woman is to set forth her acceptance of God's place for her, that is, that she is to honor the man. You might want to keep all of that secret when you leave the church. Because if you go outside of here and you say a woman is to honor the man, then you expect to be run up the flagpole. Now we go down to verse number 16 in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Let me tell you what that means. In the Bible times, it was a custom across the board, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Christian or pagan, that the woman should wear a veil to show subjection to men. I mean, the whole society, all of society, recognized that as a, as a show of submission, and not to do that would have been very scandalous and damaging to the gospel. Only loose and immoral women refused to wear a covering. And when they did, they were considered to be the dregs, or when they didn't, I should say, they were considered to be the dregs of society. 
And so if a woman didn't follow that custom, that would be a terrible testimony. And that would be another reason for people to say, well, Christianity ought to be rejected. It's unreasonable. It's radical. Christianity is upsetting to the societal order. And so Paul advised the church to stick to the custom. We have no other such custom, he says, not even the churches of God. We all recognize this. This is a societal norm. We recognize that the woman is to wear a covering. So Paul says, stick to the custom. And nobody did anything differently. And certainly there wasn't anything wrong with following that custom. Well, the question then, what are we to do today? Some churches insist that women should wear head coverings still today. They don't believe Paul's talking about a custom here, that he's speaking of a mandate. Well, if that was true, then we would have to stick to the mandate that he gave according to the New Testament. What was that? What did first century churches do? And what, what, how did they show that submission? Well, they wore a head covering. The woman would wear a covering that covered not only her head, but it went all the way down to the shoulders. And so you would be looking at something very similar to the burqa that's worn in Arab countries rather than the little bitty lace thing that some of these women wear on their head and call that their head covering. And then secondly, wearing a head covering in the church to show submission, but then not being submissive when you're outside of the church is a, called hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is worse than not wearing uh, a head covering, which is all too common in our churches, that kind of hypocrisy. So if a woman is submissive, there's nothing wrong with wearing a head covering in church, but I think that the meaning of all this would be pretty much lost on people because a head covering means nothing in our society. If you go out uh, on the streets of Santa Rosa and you see a woman wearing a hat or many women wearing a hat, and you say, why are you wearing that hat? What do you think that they would say? Some of them would say, well, I'm wearing the hat because it's cold outside. It keeps my head warm. Another one might say, well, I didn't wash my hair today. I didn't comb it out. I've got a bed head. So I put a hat on. And then others say, you know, it's really fashionable. I've got a fancy hat. You know, this, is, this looks good with my outfit. But if you go up to them and you say to them, well, I'm glad to see that you're wearing a hat because that shows you're in submission to your husband. Well, about 99 of them or more would show you how feminine they are by socking you in the eye and giving you a black eye. Just suggesting that and people will turn on you. Nobody thinks that a woman wearing a hat has anything at all to do with submission. So what would you teach by it? You couldn't teach anything by it. Now, I will say, though, Paul did also have a lot to say about hair. And he taught that hairstyles help us to tell the difference between a man and a woman. Pam and I were watching a program the other night, and there was a person wearing men's clothing and uh, had short hair that was buzzed on one side, but also looked to have a female anatomy. And I just said, Pam, would you look at that? I said, what is that? And uh, I didn't know, is it a man, is it a woman, is it an it? And apparently it was an it, because it was some kind of a freak of nature that had morphed gender. And I know that might sound a little bit insensitive, but these kinds of things are high crimes against God. This is some of the most serious stuff that you find in the Word of God. People are just outlandish in the things that they do against God's Word. I shared this with the Romans class a few weeks ago. 
We were studying at the end of Romans 1, and Paul wrote that these people who do such things twist nature. He said, these things are against God's order, and when this happens, when people go this far, God gives them up to a reprobate mind. And that means, when this happens, that their senses are dulled, their understanding is warped, and they actually become senseless. As an example of that, uh, I read uh, an article about the gender debate in Britain as they were about to pass some new laws about how to relate to all the gender switching and genderless people. I don't know how that's possible, but how do you refer to these people? And they said, well, there are certain statements that you can't say anymore. These are considered to be offensive, and these should be labeled hate speech. And one of these statements was this. This is hate speech. Men cannot give birth. Men cannot give birth. Then they started to question this. Pregnant women. You can't say a pregnant woman. You've got to say a pregnant person. Now, what's the problem? Well, the transgendered man, that is a woman who has made herself into man, can give birth. And so it's offensive to say men can't give birth. Because you got this ugly old woman who wants to be a man, and so she, she calls herself a man, and she has all the plumbing that she needs to give birth. Well, finally, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Britain, called a halt to all this, and she said, you know, it's okay if you say pregnant women. Now, the point is that when you start to go against nature, there is confusion. And if you insist on doing this, God lets the mind go haywire until the point that it's impossible to deal with these people. They are completely out of reason. They have no sense at all. That's why you have a thing called a gender debate. And that's why you come up with things like genderless people and biology doesn't determine sex. That's senseless. It's crazy. But that's the reprobate mind. That's what happened. And your children are being trained that way in school. And this is the way they'll all think eventually by public education. Anyway, we're off topic. The point here is subjection. The natural order is for the woman to be in submission to the man. That's not going to change. No matter how long it takes and no matter how society changes, that will never change change and what we have to do is keep on preaching the biblical creational order the argument is not with me on this take it up with God he's the one who says this well let's take it all back now and go to the go back to the Old Testament and the priest the priest was supposed to wear a head covering the mitre is a part of his wardrobe and it has its purpose and this is a picture of the relationship between Christ and God Man is always below God, but Christ was not always below the Father. Now it's interesting, in Revelation we're told that the mark of the Antichrist is the number 666. And I think that that number stands for an unholy trinity. And I think that it shows that man at his best, as high as a man can go, he can only be a six. Seven is the perfection of God. And you can give a creature all the power that he can hold, but he'll never be a seven. He'll never reach God. That's a little bit of the impetus behind that article that I wrote in the bulletin this morning about Mormons who believe that God is an exalted man. 
No, God is not an exalted man. Nobody is ever going to reach the position of God. Man is always a six, not a seven. Satan is a created being, and he can never be a seven. So he's also a six. So you have these the, the six here. Seven's the perfection of God. But here's the most remarkable act that has ever happened in all the history of man. This, this act comes into play, and that is when Christ became a man. The priest represents Christ, and Christ is God, and yet Christ was willing to submit himself to God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are a holy trinity, and they are equal. The Son is equal to the Father, the Spirit is equal to the Son, the Son and the Father uh, are equal to the Spirit. This is a matter of equality in their authority. They are equal in power and authority. But in the council halls of eternity, it was decided that God would create, and in the creation, God planned that there would be a fall, and His design in that fall was to bring the greatest glory to Himself. So he allowed the fall, and then he had a plan to remedy the fall. The plan is incomprehensible to our finite minds. Theologians argue over it. They argue, when was that decided? And what is the order of the decision? When does the fall occur according to God's decision? And when did God decide to elect people? And all these kinds of things... But it doesn't really matter too much whether you are a supralapsarian or whether you are an infralapsarian. Those are things that refer to the timing of the fall. It doesn't matter which of those you are. Just remember this. God is sovereign and God is always in control. And the plan was for the son to step down in his equality in this sense that he willingly submitted to the father and was determined to do his will. And so in his humanity, he took a lower position in order to redeem man from his sins. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Verses 16 and 17, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus was made lower than the angels, that he might reconcile man to God. Now once again, I'd mis- I, I, I mentioned this current debate over the submission of Christ. Some say that the Son has always been in subjection to the Father. That is a misunderstanding of the Trinity. There are men that are far more qualified to argue this than me, but it seems apparent that there was a change in the status of equality. That is, in this sense, that when Christ took on human flesh, he placed himself into a different position, a different position than he was before. He didn't give up any power. He didn't give up any authority. He gave up no attributes of God. That can never change. There can never be a fundamental change in the immutable God. But there was an apparent change in the relationship of how that authority is used. And Christ willingly surrendered authority as a man to accomplish redemption's work. And so he voluntarily stepped down. 
There is no coercion that's involved here because that's impossible with God. Equal power and authority cannot supersede equal power and authority. But because God had such love for mankind, the Son stepped down to become human flesh. And to do that, you have to understand that there are limitations that are imposed. Jesus, as a man, experienced what we experience, so he did become tired. That's something God can't do. God never gets tired. Jesus was hungry, as you and I are hungry. Jesus was even emotional, as you and I are emotional. Now, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, this scripture you're very familiar with. I want to re review it just briefly as it relates to this subject that we're speaking of tonight, on submission and eternal submission, whether that's true or not. So we look at Philippians chapter 2, and starting at verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now notice there in verse number 6, that the son did not think it robbery to be equal with God. That's a little bit hard to understand in the King James. Other translations are clearer, as the translators say, that Christ did not think that equality with the Father was something that he needed to grasp at, or in other words, something that he could never let go. In other words, in consideration of this great act that his father wanted him to do, it was better that Christ should step down. Now understand that God is omniscient. He knows exactly how all of this is going to turn out. And the condescension of Christ would result in greater exaltation. Stepping down and being brought back up would cause the creation to recognize his glory in a way that it otherwise could not know. So we see in verse number 9, there's the willing subordination of the Son, and what happens is it results in a higher position that is a higher way that's evident to all of God's creatures. This can't be shown in a different way. Now verses 9 and 10, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, Notice, highly exalted him. This is after going down, being brought back up. He's highly exalted and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. So there isn't any eternal subordination. Otherwise, the verses that we've just read in Philippians 2 would lose their sense. Here, the incomprehensible was done. The son stepped down and he subjected himself to the father's will. And that is the thing that no one in heaven, no being in heaven, no creature in heaven other than God can grasp. Peter wrote this remarkable verse in 1 Peter 1 verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. In this last phrase, which things the angels desire to look into. Angels desire to investigate this because it's incomprehensible to them why God would do this for us. 
in willing submission, Christ went to the death of the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not, opened not his mouth. Now for those of you that are in the Romans class, we discussed a little bit of this, this thought, not this particular scripture this past week when we talked about the passive obedience of Christ. And for those of you that were here, if you want to make note of this scripture, this is an, this is a, an example of passive obedience. So each time that the priest brought a sacrificial lamb, he pictured Christ's obedient death. It is the will of the Father. This is the picture of the priest when he wore the mitre. There is authority on the head of Christ. That he has an eternal priesthood in which there is only one authority over him, and that authority is God the Father. So I would submit to you that if a man were to wear a head covering in the church, he would assume too much, because he would bypass Christ to get to the Father. You have to think about this for a minute. But he would bypass, if he wears the head covering, he bypasses Christ to get to the Father because then he stands in the place of Christ. And you can't do that. You must submit to Christ first. And Christ submits to the Father. The head of every man is Christ. He shows his submission by not wearing the head covering that Christ wore for his Father. Are you getting my picture now? And he only, the woman wears it because she's in subjection to the man. Now we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is insightful for us understanding what happens at the end of the age. What happens when Christ surrenders all of this work back up to God? 1 Corinthians 15 verse number 24. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father... When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. Uh, do you understand what that means? That the one who's not under the authority of Christ is God the Father. Everything else is, but not God the Father. Verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In the end, the creation will be brought back to God. That's the purpose of Christ and his work. He came to destroy the works of the devil, the one who is the usurper, the one who, who took creation and corrupted it and now Jesus Christ is going to bring that creation back under the authority of God now in this text verse number 28 is difficult will Jesus always be subject to the father or will Jesus be returned to the former glory of the Godhead now, we just saw over in Philippians that he will be restored. So how are we going to reconcile these two passages? Well, I'm going to tell you, that's difficult. And you have to approach it very cautiously. And I believe that it means that at the last, when the world is destroyed, and the new heavens and the new earth are created in holiness and righteousness, that all things go back up to God, and then we have a Godhead that is equal to rule 
over everything. But as it represents Christ in his humanity, the human Christ is the way that God will always be in contact with his creatures. That the will of God will be known through the human Christ who will always exist in that form. And so when we get to heaven, we'll see God through the humanity of Christ. Now, he's the eternal manifestation of the Father. And so the mediatorial work of Christ is done. That's all surrendered back up to God, and God is all in all. And then the Godhead rules without any being in subjection to the other. But there'll come a day when Christ no longer acts in this role of the one who brings us to God. He'll complete that work. And that's when the last of his elect have been reconciled. And at that point, the mediatorial kingdom of Christ ceases. This is mysterious. Wouldn't you say? This is all mysterious. This is not known by the priest when he put a miter on his head. Do you think that he thought all this through and said, Oh, I see. Do you see? You probably don't. You may have to listen to this sermon five times before you get the part that I just said. The priest doesn't know all of this. He doesn't know how powerful the symbol is. This hat, this hat that he wears has eternal kingdom consequences. And so like, like the meaning of sacrifices, the meaning of all the clothes that he wore, all of this is very mysterious. So I would need to ask you something. Is it worth studying these things today from a New Testament perspective that tells us why these things are done? God wants us to discover more about Him. And each of these studies that we have is to prompt our thinking about the glorious work of Christ. I remember years ago, we hired a young man as our youth director at our church in Kentucky. And he was a graduate of Hiles Anderson College in Indiana. One of the deacons handed him a book that was entitled Rethinking Baptist Doctrine. Now, perhaps you can imagine what that book was about. But this young man refused it. And he said, I don't need to rethink it. And I'm afraid there are many people that approach doctrinal matters in that way. They have their fill. They're convinced. They know what they know. They know all there is to know. Somebody told them something and that something must be true. So that's good enough. I think maybe it was Matt who told me that after hearing the same types of salvation messages for years and then coming to Berean, he figured, well, I must have learned everything. I must know it all. But do we know it all? Not even close, folks. Every page that you turn in the Bible is a new journey into the majesty of Jesus Christ. Like the high priest who put a hat on his head, we have no idea how meaningful the work of Jesus Christ is. The more we study, the more we say, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your many, many blessings. Thank you for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And thank you for your word that tells us these things that we truly do need to know to understand how majestic our Lord Jesus Christ is. Help us, Lord. Maybe some things here that... We're hard to understand tonight, and I've run through them very, very quickly. The concepts may not be easily discerned, but we can take our Bibles, we have the Scripture, and we just sit down, listen to this all again, and get the point here that it's all to show your magnificence, your exaltation, and what you did is above and beyond even an angel could ever understand. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us some way to recognize 
what you've done for us. Let's praise you, Lord. Praise you as our sovereign God who needs to be lifted higher than the heavens itself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.